The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, today our show is about cybersecurity and cybersecurity laws. I was reading this fascinating article called Unsettled Cybersecurity Laws Puzzle Companies, and it was written by Todd Terrell, who I'm going to be speaking with, and also uh, with his partner, Kathleen Kaiser. But we're talking with, uh, we're going to be talking with Todd in, in just a second here, and he has a wonderful background. Let me just tell you a little bit about him. He's going to be coming from, from San Francisco to join in with us. Todd Terrell is a partner in DLA Piper's litigation practice and serves as the office regional practice group leader for litigation. He's based in San Francisco, and his practice focuses on complex financial disputes, corporate governance, including corporate compliance, alternative investments arising out of private equity, and he is just filled with a lot of great information for us for companies large and small. So thank you, Todd, for joining us from Northern California. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So, you know, there is a big concern. We've heard about all of these security breaches for a long time, and especially just recently with Target. What is the first step in implementing a data privacy policy? You know, from my experience, the very first step as a foundational block is to identify a team that will implement your policy. Um, Sometimes companies, depending on their uh, cash flow and their size, can employ a full-time data cybersecurity officer who can oversee the project. Um, Often, again, depending on the size, companies will hire a third-party consultant to implement the program. But I do believe that it begins with sort of the foundational DNA is with the privacy policy of any particular company, regardless of the sector that that company is in. Exactly. And, you know, People don't realize they think, oh, well, if they're driving by here in, you know, Aliso Viejo, which is like the little Silicon Valley, they're thinking, oh, well, that doesn't apply to me. I don't have to worry about that. But that's not really the case. Small and medium sized companies also have to be concerned about this. Isn't that true? I think that's exactly right. I think that uh, we tend to hear about the companies that um, grab the headlines. Uh, We lawyers like to call that headline risk for the major companies that we um, represent. But uh, the reality of it is is there are far more uh, mid-sized companies and smaller companies, and that's what we want in this country as we try to have a dynamic economy. But those companies are not um, absolved from their obligations under uh, the California law or under federal law to make sure that they're protecting uh, the privacy of individuals. It's just not true. So smallness, if that's a word, will not 
help you. Exactly. So I guess maybe we should kind of skip down to the California law. And we've talked about it on here before about our security breach law. So maybe we'll, we'll kind of jump to that and then jump back to how we do a, a privacy policy. Sure. Let's kind of explain why this, you know, why little companies, small and medium-sized companies also have to worry because it really applies to anyone, even governmental agencies in California, correct? It does. Um, the reality of it is, is that California law has been pretty clear under California's data security disclosure law um, and the shine the light law, which I think has been implemented uh, more than 12 years ago at this point, um, which I think is specifically cited as Senate Bill 1386. Mm-hmm. Um, Companies doing in business in California that store computerized personal data are now required to disclose any breach of the security of data to California residents whose unencrypted personal information was or is reasonably believed to have been acquired by an unauthorized person. That's pretty black-letter law stuff. Yeah, and I remember, actually, I worked on that, that legislation, and we wanted to have the carrot and the stick. And the carrot was, if you encrypt that sensitive data, including such things as, you know, name along with social security number or health information now or your account number, that if you encrypted it, then you wouldn't have the duty to disclose and be embarrassed and cost a fortune. So that was the uh, that was the carrot if you encrypt. And then, of course, the stick is if you don't encrypt, you have to disclose, even if you're a mom and pop store and somebody stole your computer and all of your uh, clients information and their sensitive data was on there. You have a duty to disclose. Right. I think that's absolutely correct. It's, look, it, it can really be summarized pretty quickly, I think, as long as a company conducts business in California and owns or licenses in some fashion computerized data that includes personal information, it has a legal obligation to notify its California consumers of security breaches. Um, if you're not going to encrypt, then you better be prepared for the stick if, you, uh, if there's a uh, footfall. Exactly. And now, I mean, now we've even added that um, email addresses are, are part of the uh, considered personal information and passwords. So, you know, I mean, it's it's out there that there's a lot of sensitive information that people collect that they don't even think about, right? I think that's exactly right. I think that a law just went into effect on January 1st. Right. Um, to be specific, again, California Civil Code Section 1798.29, and it uh, expands uh, the, ty- the type of information that um, uh, companies need to be careful with. It's, if you have personal information, it's going to include a username or email address right. in combination with a password or security question. That is now defined as personal information that needs to be protected. Okay, so now let's get to writing a, p- a privacy policy because that has that's you're going to be held to that if you if you have a policy and you violate it you're going to be held to it. So, w- what recommendations do you have for for writing that privacy policy? Sure, uh, in my view, a cybersecurity policy should have two goals. First, it has to intentionally, and I want to emphasize and shine a light on that word, intentionally, incorporate privacy measures into the company's products and services and to reflect the company's practices. With regard to number one, that that intentionality prong, um, it's important that it should be, privacy should be a default setting. Privacy should be embedded into the design and architecture of the systems and practices, and the privacy practices should be visible and transparent. 
Um, with regard to the second prong in terms of reflecting the company's practices, um, some good resources are to go to the California Attorney General website or the Federal Trade Commission's uh, website um, and to, to understand what their best practices are because both have brought complaints against companies either for lacking a privacy policy altogether, which I think uh, companies these days are substantially remiss if they don't have a privacy policy, but failing to describe accurately in their privacy policies their actual data collection and use practices. Those are, those are the critical factors, in my view, for building a, a, an appropriate privacy policy for small companies. Right. And, and, you know, some companies will just take somebody else's policy and just copy and paste it, and that's really not going to work. <laughs> Because then, you know, then if if they aren't following it, then they're in trouble. But how about even if you have a great policy, the the issue is if you have employees, how how can you be assured that the employees will implement it? Well, that's always the weakest link in any particular implementation of a privacy policy. Um, In my perspective, from the companies that I advise, um, it's important that companies, if they're serious about this, and I do think that they ought to be, that they need to conduct extensive background checks before hiring employees um, who will have access to sensitive information. Unfortunately, history is prologue for many people, and if they have, if a poor background is discovered, um, you might be able to avoid a future problem. Um, from a pragmatic perspective, once you have employees that are in place doing this type of job, I think it's important to have employees sign an agreement, create a contract to follow the policy and protect that confidentiality and the security of the sensitive data. That's important because you elevate the, the, the conversation, you make it serious, then you have this compact with your employees that they recognize what it is that they do and they recognize what it is that they're allowed to do in the latitude that they have with regard to the sensitive data. And I think there's, a, you know, Mari, you mentioned the uh, carrots and sticks. I think the sticks approach here is also crucial, and that is companies need to make it clear that employees who misuse sensitive data can and will be fired. I, I think that that is essential to uh, allowing the marketplace to regulate itself. Um, I think that we have to require employees to use robust passwords that are changed regularly. These are basic disciplines that I think companies have to start uh, thinking about. And, and, you know, sometimes you have the the rogue employee or you have the dirty insider, but sometimes you just have really negligent employees. I mean, they're just not thinking they're, they're, doing something else. They, they put stuff on a, on a thumb drive. They take the thumb drive home. They lose the thumb drive. So, you know, training sounds like it would be really like you were talking about, you know, that you have to let them know that you think it's serious, that they, that they follow the rules and that they're conscious about it because a lot of the employees are, are not necessarily going to be um, intentionally doing this, although there are some that we've all heard about. But there are those that just are oblivious. Isn't that right? I think that's true. Um, I do a lot of corporate compliance work, and what that is is, is education programs uh, at the board level and at the management level trying to develop programs for employees, rank and file and otherwise, who are educated about the nature of the threat and the risks. Uh, part of that process is be, it's becoming all too apparent is that there needs to be a what I will call a privacy module as part of the pedagogical approach of any company as they're trying to educate their employees. Regular, consistent training that is, uh, that conforms to what are often very, very, uh, uh, varied and shifting practices of the privacy world. It's moving very fast, but you have to try. Yes, exactly. 
So what are some resources that you would suggest to these maybe medium-sized companies that don't have in-house privacy officers? Do you have any good resources that you want to suggest so the people who are driving by might now that they're now that we scared the heck out of them, <laughs> <laughs> you know there are a couple, um, two particularly insightful um, resources are found on the FTC's, the Federal Trade Commission's website. Uh, one of those is the twenty most critical internet security. Okay. Um, that's www.sans.org forward slash top 20. It was produced by the Science Institute and the FBI, and it describes the 20 most commonly exploited vulnerabilities in Windows programs and Unix programs. Look, the reality of it is, is that there are thousands of security incidents that affect these operating systems um, uh, every day, but... What the FBI and the Sands Organization Institute have discovered is that basically there are 20 vulnerabilities that um, you know bad guys, uh, wrongdoers, um, seem to be exploiting with regard to systems. With regard to web applications, I have another website that might be helpful to your listeners, and that's the 10 most critical web application security vulnerabilities, and that's www. OWASP.org, and it's uh, was produced by the Open Web Application Security Project, and it describes common vulner- vulnerabilities for web applications and databases and the most effective way ways to address them. I can't encourage your listeners enough, um, but to to take a look at the FTC website. Yes, it is. It is just a tremendous resource uh, for an organization that's trying to, to police a very difficult subject matter across multiple industries, and uh, it provides a lot of a lot of good information for um, companies, small, big, and large. Yes, and then also privacy.ca.gov goes back to the um, to the attorney general's office, and they have a bunch of wonderful recommended practices for businesses and also privacyrights.org has recommended practices. So those are a couple others in, in, you know, in addition to what you had said. So let me ask you something, Todd, um, you know, people sometimes collect or companies collect more than they really need. So what kind of, uh, data should they collect and how long should they keep it? Well, answering that in reverse order, how long should the data be kept, um, it's my view and the type of advice I try to give is that a company should avoid collecting unnecessary data and they should only keep it as long as necessary. Um, Back to that privacy policy, Mari, uh, your company should adopt a written document and data retention policy that reflects exactly how it collects, uses, stores, and disposes of data. And then it should follow that policy. Um, it, I am always surprised, if not chagrined, by companies that have a policy regarding how, how they use data and how long they keep data, but then they don't actually follow it. It's just not a disciplined approach to a very crucial area of our society these days. Um, with regard to the type of data, it does matter. Uh, for example, if you are dealing with um, health, personal health care information, there are very complex and strict rules that, that uh, folks in the United States have been grappling with for a long time under the HIPAA rules and regulations. Or if your company collects data from children under the age of 13, they need to understand, they need to follow the Federal Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, or COPPA. Um, there are other examples as well, but those are the things that come immediately to mind. So, you know, when we were talking about employees before, I was thinking about, you know, how many employees bring their their 
cell phones, their smartphones, their, uh, you know, their slates, their iPads, what do you, you know, their thumb drives. What about this BYOD, bring your own device? What kind of policy do you recommend? Sure. This BYOD, bring your own device um, issue affects every company, small, medium, and large, and throughout every sector of our economy. And I don't think it's responsible to advise against um, allowing employees to bring their own devices per se, but companies must have a BYOD policy because these devices come with risk. And so the privacy policy has to include the use of personal devices. IT personnel at every company, or if you're not big enough to have your own IT personnel, your outsourced IT work, if if that's your sector, if you have the need for IT, should have the ability to disable an employee's device in the event it is lost or stolen or the employee is terminated. I think those are pretty basic. Um... With regard to perhaps larger companies, um, they have to require that their devices that access a company's network, um, that they do so only through a VPN or some other secure connection. Um, And, you know, it's important that the data privacy and security programs consider the implications of employee privacy as employees are likely to store on their devices personal information and pictures, videos, et cetera, um, of their own. So it's it's this blending and melding of two worlds, a personal life versus a professional life that companies are grappling with. But the only way through is to have a detailed and implementable and executable policy. I know. It's it's a rough one. I remember there was a case that I was an expert on in identity theft in which a company um, had allowed the people to bring their own devices. And one of the employees had actually taken pictures of a sensitive da- of of um, documents with sensitive data, including social security numbers, account numbers, etc. And of course, then there were victims of identity theft. So you know that those are the kinds of things that jump in my mind. And like, you know, what kind of access do they have? Do they have to have access? You know, who has access? And if they do have access, do they have audit trails so they know who does what? Right. I think that's exactly right. You know, some of these, we talk about privacy and we immediately think about the information that is exchanged um, on, on servers or on computers. But at often, all too often in my experience, it's this old-fashioned um, access to information that is left on a car seat. or left on a train uh, seat and somebody gets access to it or on a plane. And it's these old-fashioned mistakes that through, I think, good policies that are successfully uh, implemented can help to uh, minimize. I don't think it's reasonable to expect these mistakes not to happen, but we can reduce the occurrences if people are disciplined about it. Yes. And I remember many years ago, you know, I don't know if you know this, but I had been a victim of identity theft myself and I was on a bunch of shows and I ended up writing books. And I remember Harold Dow from 48 hours came out from New York to see me and he had become a victim of identity theft when CBS had hired a cleaning crew and that cleaning crew at night came in and was able to rifle through the garbage and get through the computers and do all sorts of stuff and steal the identity of over 20 of CBS's (laughs) top people. And uh, so, you know, this is, this is what's going on. I mean, you have to think about, okay, so they're not our exactly our employees, but they're, they're a cleaning service that has access. So whenever I go into an escrow company or, or sometimes, you know, some of these title companies and I see all this stuff left on the desk over 
night or over the weekend, I just want to cringe. <laughs> you know, I think that's um, that's a fair cringe. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, appropriate. These these types of things you hear all too frequently. The the um, after hours personnel come in to clean it, and it sounds right up a plot right out of a Tom Clancy novel or a CSI <laughs> plot. And, right. But it is that basic. If if a the, the criminal mind um, seems to know no limits, and its ingenuity if, is um, uh, seems to know no limits, and that's a pretty basic um, uh, way into companies that have a lot of data. And so, it really matters what people are doing with their uh, with, with private information that may reside on their desk. I don't think it's appropriate simply to take that information and put it in your trash bin. I think you have to have bins, for example, and I know at my law firm, we have bins that have security <laughs> locks on them for private data. Yeah, I have I have shredders at the desks. So, you know, yeah, you, you know, you have bins for the for the heavy stuff, but, you know, just little stuff that you're doing, even if you're copying stuff, uh, you know, have a shredder right next to it. It's very simple to have. They're not very expensive. Well, I think that's right. And, you know, as we move into um, experiencing as well as trying to regulate and police this Internet of Things, one can easily surmise a situation where your copy machine, which is now wow. has a... Um, it has a you know connects with a server and and can move data can all of a sudden be accessed by a hacker and transmit that data outside of the company because they've been able to access the computer chip um, I read recently I think it was just this last weekend where um, seven hundred and fifty thousand emails were were able to be sent from a from folks refrigerators um, and so when we deal with this internet of things I think it becomes even more um, yeah, more difficult to comprehend and, and to grapple with. That's pretty scary that my smart refrigerator knows everything about me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want to lose health insurance because, um, you know, I had chocolate pudding in there or something. Like that. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting because if we do start to transmit, let me give you a hypothetical, and I know that this is an important hypothetical, hypothetical because I was uh, recently attending a seminar where um, representatives from the California AG's office were there, and they were talking about, well, let's talk about this Internet of Things. Let's say you have a blood pressure cuff that collects this data and tells you exactly what your blood pressure is, not only at that time, but collects that data over time, and then it sends that information to a server um, so that it can send you a text message about what your blood pressure is over 30, 60, 90 days. Maybe it's required for you to monitor that pursuant to doctor's orders. Well, if that server is not secure, all of a sudden that very private health information is accessible. And we are really going to be, our society is really going to be grappling with these uh, issues um, and how to regulate these issues because technology is moving in that direction faster than we can regulate. And, you know, Todd, you know, just picking up on what you just said, so, so let's say it's being regulated and then you get a text message that says, take this medicine, you know, take, take five times what you're taking. And it really is somebody that wants to kill you. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, this is the kind of stuff that, that could be a novel, but I mean, this could happen. This actually could happen. It, it, it could happen. And it does sound like science fiction, but yeah. boy, near as I can tell, so much of the science fiction that I enjoyed as a child has come true. <laughs> I know. I just want to beam up though. You know, that's what I want to do. <laughs> Now, let me ask you another one. All these all these scary things. 
Okay. We're all on the cloud, right? We're all on yes. the cloud. I, you know, my, I back up on the cloud. Of course, I encrypt before I back up on the cloud. But, you know, I mean, we're, we're on the cloud everywhere, right? When we're, we're on Facebook or whatever we're doing, we are on the cloud. What about the cloud? Well, that's a very large question. What about the cloud? Um, our information is is being transmitted to. Let me back up. What the, the, the cloud is a, a phrase and a word that folks like to use, and some people can't relate it to what it actually means. And I think what it means is a server farm, if you will, a single server or a, or a farm of servers that is off-site from where you are actually sending your data. So, for example, if I wanted to send, if I'm sending, intentionally sending data to a company that's located in St. Louis, Missouri, but that data is actually in, quote, a, the cloud uh, on a, on a farm of servers, perhaps in Prague. Um, that or is, Pakistan. <laughs> Uh, you, you you bet, and and they do that for for good reasons. The labor is cheap, and it keeps costs down, and we enjoy that as citizens of the United States. However, that cloud provider who runs those servers in Prague may not be subject to the laws in California, may not be subject to the laws of the United States, and if there's a breach or a loss of that data, there may be very little that that company in St. Louis, Missouri, who you think you're interfacing with, can do about it. Right, right. So, yeah, so that's that's why we have to have multiple backups, right? I mean, that, that would make sense that even if we back up in the cloud, we should really be backing up everywhere else, too. I mean, that's what we do. But, of course, I'm not a huge company that would have to do that. I can I can have backups by my computer and backup in the cloud, so I'm, I'm kind of like double reinforced. But what do you suggest that companies do then? Because they, you know, they should find out where the cloud is, right? I mean, where it's being backed up. If, if it were me and I were a big company, I think I'd want to make sure that all of the backups were in the United States, right? <laughs> I think that you should. I think that companies Ought to be aggressive, and I say that with a small a. I don't mean to make them be difficult with their third-party providers, um, but I think that they need to, frankly, involve their legal counsel in negotiating good agreements that require their third-party uh, providers uh, with requirements, so that the company who is utilizing those services has the right to um, get the data back has the right to prevent that third party from using the data in an untoward manner. And um, I think it's important to for those companies recognizing where it is that they operate, recognizing what laws govern them, to try to uh, create to try to implement those laws and make them bind their third parties so that their third party providers, um, I'll just call them business affiliates. It's a word that we folks that do HIPAA compliance recognize that their business affiliates are compliant with the law that governs the, the primary, um, company. Yeah. So they really have to ask a lot of questions. I mean, before you decide to use a cloud server, you really need to find out like, where are they? What are their protections? What, you know, what does their contract really say? Right. Absolutely. You really have to flyspeck that agreement. People tend to um, utilize off-the-shelf agreements, and they not they tend not to look at the at the fine print. But it, the fine print really does matter at the end of the day when folks start to flyspeck their contracts when things go awry. That's why I put them on PDF. I, I make sure I buy computer, and then I, I go and I make it really big <laughs> so I can read what the heck they're saying. You know, it's crazy. 
Well, we only have about two minutes left. Let me ask you just one quick question, and it might, you know, you might only be able to give me a couple tips. And that is, um, you know, can I, what can I do about cyber attacks that are other than my computer? I mean, is that a worry, something that I need to worry about? You know, I'm not sure I understand. This I mean, other than my work question. computer is what I'm asking you. Yeah. About cyber attacks, like, you know, is there a worry for my smartphones and other things that aren't just my computers at work? Yeah, I think that uh, I think that we really do have to concern ourselves with that. I think that we have to. You know, I mentioned the Internet of Things. Um, this is a new term in the tech industry, and it refers to a concept where every device in your company, or every device in your home, or every device that you carry gets its own computer chip software, and it's connected to the Internet. It's your door locks, your smart water meters, your refrigerator, your iPad, your iPhone, and on and on it goes, your camera. You have to be concerned about all of those um, types of devices because they're all getting smarter. They're all getting the ability to communicate uh, with the other devices, whether you actually think you're communicating or not. Well, we have to go. That's a... Great place to end to scare the living daylights out of us. <laughs> but just give your website and then it's time to go, Todd. Thank you. You're wonderful. Thank you so much. Sure. My website is uh, DLA Piper. That's uh, D L A P I P E R dot com. That's okay. my law firm. Okay. We'll have you back again. Thanks, Todd. You bet. Bye bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.